This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. This podcast is brought to you through support from our partner, the Kaliapea Foundation. Kaliapea envisions a future grounded in compassion, respect, dignity, reverence for nature, and care for each other in the earth. Other organizations they support include the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance and Led to Life. To learn more about Kaliapea's mission, visit Kaliapea.org. Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Because life matters and life is valuable, every life is valuable then I can live a worthwhile life just by focusing on what I can do in my community and those people around me. Today we are speaking with Rob Greenfield. Rob is an adventurer, activist, humanitarian, and dude making a difference. He is dedicated to leading the way to a more sustainable and just world. He embarks on extreme adventures and activism campaigns to bring attention to important global issues and inspire change. He is the creator of the Food Waste Fiasco, a campaign that strives to end food waste and hunger. He has cycled across the USA three times on a bamboo bicycle to bring attention to sustainability issues. In 2015 and 2016, he lived off the grid in a 50 square foot tiny home in San Diego before auctioning it and raising funds to build 10 tiny homes for people with no homes. He then simplified his life down to just 111 possessions, all of which fit onto his back or his bike. He currently lives in Orlando, Florida in a tiny house he built near zero waste with 99% repurposed materials for under $1,500. His current project is to grow and forage 100% of the food he eats for an entire year from 11-11-2018 to 11-11-2019. Rob travels the USA and the world speaking and hosting action days, getting people involved and activated and making the world a happier, healthier place for all. He is the host of Free Ride on Discovery Channel, the author of Dude Making a Difference, and has spoken at over 130 events in 13 countries. Rob donates 100% of his media income to grassroots nonprofits and has committed to living simply and responsibly for life. Oh, Rob, this is so wonderful to be able to share time with you today. I'm really looking forward to diving into your campaigns and your missions and your stories around how you're living your life. Well, it's very, very wonderful to be on here with you, Ayana, and uh, looking forward to a good conversation ahead. Okay, well, to jump right in, your current project, Food Freedom, began in November of last year and will continue until November of this year. 
And during this period, you've committed to grow and forage 100% of your food, even down to the grains of salt you use. And I have so many questions about this project, but I guess I'd like to begin by asking about the sort of relationships you have had to cultivate in order to accomplish this. When I first started this project, I didn't I was pretty clueless about how to grow food. I had had some small raised bed gardens when I lived in San Diego, but you know, I grew no more than a half of a percent of the food that I was eating. And so when I got here to Florida, I was just researching how much water do you give to a carrot seed? How much sun does a garden need? What kind of soil do I use? And I was just really clueless to a large degree on, on how to grow food. And then my goal was that within six months, I would be growing and foraging 100% of my food. So I just went on this period of just massive amounts of education and immersing, going on plant walks, meeting local foragers, visiting local farms and gardens. And uh, it ended up taking 10 months instead of six before I fully embarked into the, into the year. And it's just been such an amazing, immersive experience. And just just to see, I mean, just, you know, some of these concepts are so simple, but you literally, someone gives you some seeds, you stick them in the ground, and now your little tiny handful of seeds is now able to feed you and dozens of other people. And just the reality that plants are just so abundant is still something that kind of boggles my mind on, on any given day, just the, our relationship with plants and that they can be so giving to us and, and so helpful. Mm, I'm with you there. I definitely praise and worship plants on the daily and they're so, so generous with us. And I love hearing about some of the challenges you faced because I imagine that this project has not been without its challenges as with any project. And I'd love if you could share some of the difficulties you've come across and perhaps even speak to the importance of radical transparency in galvanizing audiences to take steps forward to a more sustainable lifestyle. Yeah, there's no question this has been one of the more challenging projects that I've ever done. And, you know, the reason is, is because food has been built into our lives as this very easy, convenient thing that it's pretty easy in 2019 in the United States to not have to think about where it comes from, how it gets to us, the amount of work that goes into it, or any of those sorts of things. So for me, the most challenging part is just the long-term dedication to every single ingredient that I eat for this whole year. Today's day 173 of the project. I have to either grow myself or forage, and the amount of, ultimately the amount of knowledge and a skill set that takes is pretty huge because that's the salt and the oil, that's all the calories, the protein, the you know all the nutrients. And I think I've eaten over 150 different uh, species so far, and it's just an incredible amount of knowledge that was once built into us. That you know for a while we just knew after many 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 generations of trial and error, but now we've lost so much of it. So. The big challenge is, one of it is learning it. The bigger challenge than learning it is just sticking to it. In this world where things have been made so convenient, it's just a daily battle to not take the convenient option and instead to do what is you know, better for the earth, our communities, and ourselves. And the reality is, is that 
You know, I believe that it's it's challenging to live a sustainable life or a regenerative life. Some some people like to say that it's just as easy as that convenient lifestyle and in some ways it is easier. I'm not doing a job that I don't like. I'm I'm much happier and healthier. But the reality is that every day I have a long list of chores to do and I have typically to cook three meals a day. Sometimes I, you know, make meals ahead of time, but uh it's just the sticking to it day after day after day. A year of everything that I grow or forage, including you know not being able to eat at a potluck or a friend's house, those sorts of things. That's the main challenge is just sticking to it every single day. Mm-hmm. The commitment is challenging because it's really easy in this dominant culture to give in to the conveniences. A, they're most of the time very close to our fingertips, let alone the media and the conditioning that most of us have been raised in to choose the convenient way. And that's the better way just to make things easy and fast so that you can get to the quote, more important things in life. When really the important things in life are our relationships to life itself. But that's not valued in our culture. What's valued is efficiency and fastness and, you know, doing as little work as possible for our needs. Although, of course, those those needs and the work is externalized to other people. So it's not as if it's that convenient for everybody in the supply chain. It just happens to be convenient for us at the very end. So I really appreciate you speaking to the challenges and the commitment that it takes to really be sustainable and regenerative in a world that doesn't necessarily want us to be that way because our economy is valued over all else. I've also wanted to bring up that you've mentioned that a huge impetus in creating the Food Freedom Project was your understanding that the agricultural system is detrimental in a multitude of ways and that participating in it was in direct conflict with many of your beliefs. So I'd like to really focus on how there is no such thing as cruelty-free or fair trade food production. Even when one is growing their food, we still must look at all of the externalities, like whether or not they're using their own compost or what amendments are we putting in the soil? Where are we even getting the soil? But specifically, I'm also thinking about how poorly farm workers are treated under the system. For example, U.S. food workers have some of the highest rates of food insecurity than any other industry. And in the past several decades, eight cases of slave labor have been brought against companies who yield produce from Florida's tomato fields. So with this context in mind, I, I wonder if you could speak to the right of food both on an individual level as it pertains to your project, as well as how food freedom can shed light on these many injustices. Well, I mean, you said it right. There is, There really is no way that in 2019 in our, you know, in our, in our Western society, whatever we're eating is not cruelty-free. There is probably some systems out there that aren't on earth, but the reality is, is that almost everything that we're eating, whether we grow it in our own garden or we're buying it at the grocery store, organic, or it's factory farm junk from you know a big box store, all of it is, is causing harm to some creatures and some environment, period. So for me, it's about looking at things not in this black and white way. 
today the environmental the average environmentalist really wants to label things whether it's vegan or zero waste or you know things like that and what i find is that labels create a a false sense of comfort they allow people to think that you can say okay well everything i'm eating is vegan so i'm doing a great job but then when you really look at the bigger picture you realize well actually all this vegan food you know most of the vegan food out there isn't actually cruelty free it's indirectly harming animal animals but you can kind of pass that up because you fit things into a label and you can and you can feel that comfort and that's one of the things that i think is important is not working with labels and instead not thinking in a black and white way but instead just trying to think as much as possible critical thinking you know looking at the reality seeing the gray areas and how everything that we do good chance that it's going to have what we would consider a negative effect in some way but also can have a positive impact as well i do believe that growing our own food is one of the best ways that we can start to connect to our food and eat in a way that is less exploitive of other people, less exploitive of, of other species, and less exploitive of our natural ecosystems. It doesn't necessarily get growing your own food doesn't guarantee that by any means. Any individual can do just as bad as stuff. But generally, I do think it is one of the best ways that we can end foraging, just really connecting with our food I think is one of the best ways that we can take responsibility for our lives and live in a way that is far more harmonious with the earth that we live on. Now, when it comes to foraging, I'd like to talk about the history of foraging as well as some of the lesser tackled topics around it. First, I think we have to recognize the historical decline of foraging that took place because of the marketing of industrial agriculture. And I actually think back to something I read years ago, which is how industrial agriculture's success was in large part due to how it was marketed as clean, safe, and quote, responsible because it was pre-picked, packaged, cleaned, and canned, unlike forage foods or raw produce. But more than anything, I'm really curious to know what your thoughts are around the accessibility and capacity of foraging. For example, if all 300 plus million humans in this country were to go out and forage, then what happens? We wouldn't have anything wild left. And examples of this have happened in the past, like ginseng and different herbal medicines and, um, and even different plants. So I I'd like to talk about the capacity of foraging. And then within yeah. that, who gets to forage? And how can we highlight and change the reality that so many indigenous communities face tremendous barriers in harvesting, even from their own homelands. Yes. So here's the, you know, the, one of the ways that I look at that. People often use that saying like, well, what if everybody wanted to do this? And in this example, what if everybody wanted to forage? Well, you have to zoom out a little further. If everybody wanted to forage, then what have you just had but a massive change in mindset to our entire society? If everybody wants to forage, then it means that our entire society is looking at our ecosystems and our environment and our existence in a different way. So what that means is we're going to have massive repercussions in every facet of life. Because if everybody wants to go out and forage, then they're also probably going to be looking at our water. They're going to be looking at our energy. They're going to be looking at our transportation. 
So that's the big thing. The scenario where if everybody wants to forage is I don't think it's a real scenario to isolate that because, again, it means that everything else is probably changing as well. And if everybody did want to forage and everybody was seeking reality in their food, then we would also see the crumbling of our industrialized, globalized food system at the same time and so on. So I do think that's a really important thing to keep in mind if we're you know, projecting a scenario like that. But that aside, you know, the, there's different ways of doing foraging. So you can go out into the woods, uh, you know, a more natural area, and then it's more environmentally sensitive. But you have here in Orlando, for example, you have Spanish needle or Biden's Alba. It's one of the, it's like our dandelion of the South, just in how ridiculously abundant it is. That is a weed, people consider a weed that's growing everywhere. So I don't consider that to be an environmentally sensitive thing to harvest because it's so abundant and it's in everybody's front yards and backyards. The same goes for the loquats. The Suriname cherries are invasive growing in the city. Mulberries. We have wild invasive yams that commonly grow 20, 25 pounds. And so you can be harvesting these foods. And first of all, you can be removing invasives, which is beneficial for the natives. And um, I think you can be doing it in a way that is not environmentally destructive whatsoever. You're pulling this stuff out of yards, for example. But as far as the environmental sensitivity of just going out into the wild, that's where you know, we're looking at a different scenario where what we need is educated, critical thinkers, because I don't think it's, when you have educated, critical thinkers, the reality is, is that just because it comes from a field at the grocery store, we think we're not pillaging nature, but every farm used to be a forest or a prairie or a marshland or something like that. And so that, that is being pillaged as well. So I think it has to be done intelligently and, you know, with, with good ethics and respect to the people that own that, you know, once that land was theirs or is currently theirs, but don't have the control of it that they should. Um, so, yeah. Really good points. I don't know if I'd ever thought about that perspective that if everybody happened to decide that they actually wanted to forge, we live in a very different world at that point anyways, for people's consciousness to even shift that far over to the other end of the spectrum. So that's a really interesting mental gymnastics moment to think about what that world would look like. And and I also love really thinking about what is foraged and making the differentiation between wild foraging and urban foraging or like nouveau ecosystem foraging, meaning going into ecosystems that aren't native, but maybe have a bunch of invasives and picking from those species and really having a critical lens on what is being forged and what isn't. And also taking note of how the ecosystem is functioning and what what is abundant that year and what isn't and how to maintain different populations and really thinking about the ecological knowledge that we need in order to be in right relationship with foraging. So I, I appreciate all of those notes and I'm definitely, it's definitely food for thought. Uh, but yeah. yeah, and I'd like to actually now read something you wrote about the context of your current project. Quote, this project is undoubtedly extreme, and that is very intentional. I embark on extreme adventures and activism campaigns that are designed to catch people's and the media's attention. 
There are millions of messages being pumped out each day, and this is my way of getting what I deem as a worthwhile message out to the masses, end quote. And I want to bring this up to address what some might perceive as the sensational or maybe even to some delusional aspects of your project. And what does it say about the news machines we have created and even our own capacity to understand when we have to go to extremes to even begin to change the conversation? Well, I would like to address that, yes, I am delusional uh, because all humans are delusional, I believe. Now, my goal is to embrace my delusions and to work always, to strive always to be a less delusional human being. That is one of my, that's one of my top goals. Also, I'm a hypocrite. I think that it's almost impossible to care about the environment and to care about humans and to care about other species in 2019 and not be a hypocrite. I want to say near impossible, but really I think impossible to do. Because the way that the system is set up, if you want to be a part of the system at all, just you and I speaking over uh, the computer right now, then every day we have to be living out our hypocrisies. If we want to make a difference in this world, that's another thing. If we want to make a difference in this world and live what we would consider a sustainable life, we're constantly going to have to be making sacrifices of what we can or will or will not do. But always that's going to be hypocrisies that we deal with. So for me, it's all about embracing my hypocrisies, acknowledging the reality of them, and then doing my best to reduce my hypocrisy and be transparent with them and work to reduce what I can, but realize that I can't get rid of all of it. It's just, that's just a reality. So in a little bit more on what you brought up, like I definitely could be considered, I think you could easily call me a sensationalist, maybe, I don't know the exact definition of that, but I do play the media's game. Because I'm not trying, like most of the podcasts and stuff I do are not for the wild. It's I try to do as much as possible that reaches the everyday average person who just thinks of extracting the resources from the earth and you know doesn't put any thought into the fact that this can't go on forever, our way of life. And so I'm trying to reach people, and that's what I do, you know, successfully reach reach people that haven't really thought about this stuff before. And so I have to play their game. I don't have to, but I choose to play their game in order to be successful at reaching those people. And I believe that it's worth it. And So I don't do everything exactly the way that I'd like to do it because I actually have designed my life as a demonstration. I am a one big stunt in many ways. I'm living the life that I want, leading by example, but doing it in this extreme way that really gets people to just shock people, you know, just shock them out of this delusional normalcy that they're going about on a daily basis and actually get them to stop and think, holy crap, this is not normal. What's happening is crazy. But I do that by doing these sort of crazy things that, that really get to them. Mm-hmm. It was so relieving at the beginning of your response to hear you say, yes, I'm delusional. Yes, I'm a hypocrite. Yes, it's almost impossible, if not impossible, to be in full right relationship and reciprocity all the time with the earth while also being a human living in the dominant culture. And I feel relieved by that because it's just nice to be able to call it what it is, but still keep trying. It's like we don't, 
you know, we're not striving for purity or perfection or something that may not be possible, but that doesn't mean we're giving up and that doesn't mean we're giving in. We can still keep going and still call things out for what it is and the reality of the situation, but that doesn't mean we have to give up. And so I think it's really important to be able to speak to the transparency of situations like that and not use it as a way to, you know, be a really extractive person, but just to be honest with each other. And I, I'm really interested because as somebody who initially began transforming your lifestyle through small scale changes over time, I'm, I'm really wondering when did you realize your activism would have to root itself in the extreme to gain traction? I've always been an extreme person, actually. I've always liked to test the boundaries of what was possible. And just in the past, it was done in maybe it would have been some extreme sports or stunts, things that ultimately were fun, but completely unproductive in the you know big picture. But I was living a life where I was enjoying those sorts of things. But I've always just been someone who has really liked to test boundaries. Um, just as an example, you know, when I was in fifth grade, so I was like 12 years old, me and my friend decided to set off on a bike ride and we were just going to try to bike seven miles, which I think would have been the longest bike ride we've ever done. We ended up biking to the to two towns over, which was like 29 miles away. Uh, we only had two granola bars and like two juice boxes with us or something like that. I've just always been someone who has just really like to test things. And I've also always been an entertainer. And so when I first got started with environmental activism, well, I guess I would say I first got started with adventures because I liked adventures. But more and more that I learned about the problems, I wanted to be a part of the solution. So I adapted my life while not taking away the value and the, you know, the joy of my life very much. I adapted it to turn my adventures into environmental adventures, turn my desire for extreme things into doing extreme things that, you know, actually were meaningful as I wanted to live a more meaningful life and as I started to learn about the problems in the world. And so really it's, you know, it's been a matter of adaptation. It's still wanting to follow the core of who I am an adventurer and and someone who likes to test the limits of the human experience, but realized at the same time that all is not well in the world and I don't want to be part of that. I want to be a part of the solution. So how can I take my skill set and my passion and increase that passion and do it in a way that, you know, brings benefit to the world rather than destruction? And then ultimately the more that I started to do these adventures, the more, you know, the less and less it becomes about me as I yeah, first, I was very ego-based. I still have an ego, but much less and much less over time. And so just the more that I immerse in this, it's like volunteering. At first, maybe you volunteer just because you feel like it's the right thing to do. But after years of doing it, you start to do it because you see the benefit that it brings to other people. Slightly more, you know, it becomes a more altruistic thing. But you can't become altruistic by never having practiced anything in the form of altruism. So for me, the more and more that I do things that would be considered selfless or altruistic, the more that I can move into that realm. However, I'm not selfless or altruistic because everything that I do benefits me because everything that, first of all, anything that benefits the world benefits me because it's all one whole thing, but also because 
if I can make someone else happier, that brings me happiness. So it all feeds in. It's, you know, it's all a, a cycle where if I can make the life of other people better, then I'm making my life better at the same time. And that's partly what keeps me going because I also get to live a good life by doing this stuff. I want to now move on to your other project, the food waste fiasco. And during this time, you ate solely from grocery store dumpsters in order to draw attention to our national food waste crisis. On your blog, you write, quote, $165 billion worth of food is wasted per year in the U.S., which is more than the budget of America's national parks, public libraries, veterans' health care, all the federal prisons, the FBI, and the FDA combined, end quote. And we know that this problem is connected to a complex web of issues from inefficient supply chains to overly stringent food safety regulations. And I think author Eric Holtz-Gimmons of A Foodie's Guide to Capitalism puts it really well. Quote, waste, he writes, is endemic to capitalist overproduction, end quote. And that is overproduction is this defining characteristic of capitalism. So I, I really think this speaks to why this issue hasn't been addressed, really. You know, in fact, a recent study showed that respondents who were well aware of the peril of food waste were no less likely to waste food. So I'm curious about the impact of individual action which this seems like a problem at the structural and cultural level. And then to complicate things further, I've seen how in response to food waste, a number of profit-oriented solutions have emerged. And I can't help but think of these innovations as a mere reinforcement of the dysfunction. So I guess I'm curious to hear if you think it's possible to address food waste without addressing our capitalistic tendencies to overproduce and overconsume. Is it possible to address it? Yes. Is it possible to fix it? No. The the system is a system totally in crisis. And the thing is, all of these solutions that are being used out there, they're all just band-aids. They're all work hacking at the leaves of the trees, not even going close to the roots. You know, for example, in France, you know, they're hailed for having made it illegal for grocery stores to throw away food and it has to be donated. Well, what happens now is the places that get the donations are now going to be or already are throwing away a lot of food because the problem is, is we actually have too much food. 
So all you're going to do is shuffle around who's throwing it away. Sure, you're going to increase some level of people getting to eat food that wouldn't otherwise been able to. But in the Western world, we don't actually have starvation. We have hunger. We have food insecurity. One in seven Americans are food insecure. But actually, I believe, I haven't looked at this in a while, but I think there's no case of anyone starving to death in the United States due to lack of food. That's not something we deal with. We deal with food insecurity, people not knowing where their next meal is going to come from. But the point is, is that in the United States, we produce two times more food than we can eat. So we have enough food to feed two entire American populations. The only way to stop food waste is to produce half the amount of food because we can't eat all the food that we produce, period. And we know that it is, there, there is no efficient system to compost or to make energy from perfectly good food that actually recovers more than the tiniest fraction of all the resources that went into producing it in the first place. So, no, we can't solve this problem without completely remaking the system, and I think that would be demonetizing food. I don't think that food can be monetized and we can expect to have a just food system that serves everyone and that doesn't you know, pour billions of pounds of foods out, out of the seams in every stretch of it. So why this individual action? Like, why would I talk about individual action? Why do I take any actions? And here's why. Because we don't need a bunch of hypocrites running around. If we as individuals are going to run, run around just wasting as much food by percentage as these corporations, how can we be empowered people that are going to stand up to them? So what I believe is that in order to create strong humans with foundations where they can stand up to these corrupt corporations, they need to feel empowered. And I think it's very challenging to be empowered and a hypocrite. So that's what I'm trying to do is empower people by helping them take small steps, starting with those small steps in hopes that those small steps create a landslide of motivation and empowerment that transforms them over time, that allows them to actually stand with real power up to these corporations without major hypocrisy and say, this is what we need to do. Tell the corporations and the governments and change the system, but we need empowered people in order to be able to do that. That's my opinion. Yeah, I feel... Like the more that we get involved with our own individual actions, the more we will feel empowered and the more knowledge we'll have so that when we are standing up to the government or corporations, we have a foundation to stand on rather than just our frustrated opinions, but actual opinions that are rooted in our own physical knowledge of what it is to grow food and to feed ourselves. And it's really shocking to hear how much food we produce, how much food is wasted, and then people not getting enough food or getting enough nutrients in our country, in the U.S. It's really insane. It's just another one of those things on the list of ridiculous, insane issues with these systems. So I appreciate you being able to really make it super clear exactly what it is we're up against. And I'm also thinking about how the system works because we continue to buy into it. And your projects, Gardens for Single Moms and Gardens for the People, are community-run initiatives that focus on building space and support systems and growing food for single parents and elders and low-income folks. 
And I'm curious if you think these individual gardens are acts of justice in a society where tackling the damage of structural oppression does not seem to be high on the agenda. And I think about how it's hard to fix the dysfunction when we uphold the dysfunction. So in some ways, are these gardens gateways in which the system loses power? Well, yeah. I mean, anybody who takes power into their own hands is taking a little bit of power away from these systems and putting it back into the individuals. So it's very small. But if you can get someone to start growing their own food and you can get them thinking, wait a sec, this food is growing freely and abundantly right in my own front yard and doesn't have to come from these corporations and this food that's shipped from all the way around the world, that is, I think, one of the more revolutionary thoughts that are out there. I also think food is one of the greatest gateways in changing people's lives. I mean, it was for me, and for so many people, it's watching documentaries like Food Inc., for example. People start to rethink food, and it's a gateway where you start to rethink everything. But food is such an easy one because, you know, most of us eat food three times a day or way more, 10 to 20 times a day for a lot of us. And it's something that we just, it's so much easier to connect with. So I think the gardens are really just one of the greatest gateways in getting people to rethink food and then ultimately rethink the system, rethink our existence. Now, what I'm doing is it's not the solution. The, the problems are so big that I could never be the solution. I'm one human in seven billion. I'm really small. Even if you're somebody like Gandhi, still, what can you, what has one person achieved? In the grand scheme of things, you know, he was liberating just one country out of 200 on this earth. It's actually, you know, a small drop in the hat of talking about any real global justice or anything like that. And, you know, he's hailed as one of the great people of our time. So, big picture wise, what can one individual do and can they design their life to actually fit into all the forms of justice, environmental, uh, social, you know, animals, humans, all of that? Not really, because that's just ridiculously hard in the life that we live today. So, you know, what I'm trying to do is live a life that's pretty good, that reduces the number of ways that I'm causing harm destruction to other people and to other species and to the earth, knowing that I'm not going to get it down to, to zero by any means, and, and embrace that reality. But the bigger picture is, I don't think any one of us individuals is going to solve the global crisis that we see. And I don't think, I personally don't believe that even all of us coming together are going to solve it. I actually don't think things are going to work out in the grand scheme of things for the human race. Um, just logically, we know 99% of all species that ever existed have died, so we're probably going to go that way as well. But the way things that are going, I don't see us pulling out of this. So my big picture is I'm not trying to solve every problem out there. I think that life matters. And so if I can be of benefit to the life of the people around me and do it in a way that doesn't actually – I'm not like pulling from one area just to help a few people – designing my life to try to be generally less destructive and have benefit. And while I'm alive, if I can improve the life of people and animals around me, just some people and animals, I'm only one person in 7 billion, 
then that is a life worth living. Because life matters and life is valuable, every life is valuable, then I can live a worthwhile life just by focusing on what I can do in my community and those people around me. And honestly, (laughs) I feel like we should be thinking that way, all of us. I don't think anybody should have the pressure or the narcissism to think that them individually are able to create a fissure in this enormous system. It's too much. It's too much for one person to take on. There's no, it's not possible. But I think that we kind of live in this hero narrative mentality. And so I think it's easy for people to get wrapped up in this feeling that they personally have to come up with the solutions or be the savior. And that mentality, I think, gets us into a lot of trouble. And it's not real because it does take community to make big changes. And it's not possible and it's way too lonely to think that we can do it on our own. And so I I really appreciate your transparency and your directness around what you feel like your role is in this massive, some people call it an apocalypse or the great turning or collapse, you know, whatever word you choose to use for this time. And I know you've summarized that your current financial status on your website, noting that you have taken vows to earn no more than $5,000 a year, own no more than $5,000 worth of possessions, and own no more than $5,000 in cash and financial assets. So I'm really curious to hear more about what the process of demonetizing your life looked like and whether or not you were able to demonetize your life because you had a degree of financial stability to begin with. You know, in other terms, is this relatable to those stuck within intergenerational poverty? And what do you have to say to those who are looking to get out of forced poverty before they can even begin to think about scaling down again? Absolutely. I'm able to do what I do because I live a privileged life. There's no question about that. And so I design my life based around my life. So what I'm trying to do is not reduce my privilege. That's not possible, I don't think. You know, I'm a, I'm a white male, Westerner. But what I'm trying to do is reduce the ways that, you know, my privileged life actually takes from others who are less privileged, just extracts from them, and, you know, keeps them in a system of um, being put in a situation where they get less. So no... The reason that I'm able to do things the way that I am is because as like I had the financial stability to move into a life, into demonetizing my life. Whereas if someone's just fighting to pay rent and be able to get the basic things and feed their children and things like that, then they're not in a place where they can really go ahead and demonetize their life. So 100%, like I embrace that I'm able to do so much of what I do because of the privileges that I have. Now, however, I do believe that people in those scenarios can learn from my example and realize, okay, I don't need these things these corporations are selling me to try to keep me in poverty. There's many ways that I can drastically reduce the ways that I am actually being bought into this system that actually is not in my favor or my community's favor. So I do hope that I can help and show, you know, look, your self-worth doesn't come from material possessions. I grew up very poor. My mom made uh, 
around $15,000 a year to support me and my three siblings, no dads. Um, we did have help from the government and from my aunt and grandpa. So we, you know, we lived fairly comfortable. We had what we need, but definitely grew up quite poor. Um, so I'm not delusional in that regards to, you know, having grown up in some situation where I had a lot of money, you know, nothing like that. And, and I always wanted a lot of money because I wanted to get out of being poor. I wanted to, you know, I wanted the American dream, the nice house, the nice car. So I don't in any way fault anybody for wanting that mainstream narrative of the American dream. I don't fault anyone for wanting convenience and comfort and all those things. Those are all, you know, kind of basic things. So really the idea of me living with very little money, which I do want to clarify, my original vow was under $15,000 a year. And then I did change it to $5,000. And I found that to be a little bit too little. So I basically set it now to the federal poverty threshold, which as an individual is currently $12,000. But last year I made $8,000 and the year before that I made $5,000. So it's definitely, and so far this year I've made $2,500. So, you know, I keep it really minimal. But, um, so the purpose of living with less money is not in any way to simulate poverty, but to show mostly privileged people that they can do with far less and in doing so live a life that is more socially just where they're actually, instead of me, 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 me needing a million dollars for retirement, people need 20 bucks now. People need clean food and clean water now. So instead of using all that privilege as a privileged Westerner, how can you plug that privilege into helping the less privileged to have those basic needs met and to live in a more just society. So that's that's really, you know, what it's about. And and the other thing is the more access you have to money, the easier it is to overconsume resources. And so by reducing my monetary, you know, assets, the amount of money I have available, it forces me ultimately a lot of times to do the right thing. To you know, money makes it easy to do the destructive thing. And so by having less money, it makes it a lot harder for me to, to do the things that ultimately are less, less just.
Yeah, and I appreciate you talking about the differences between forced poverty versus chosen demonetization, which is not chosen poverty. And I think it's a really important distinction to make, and I appreciate that a lot. And I agree, the more money you have in your account, the more potentially people are likely to, you know what, screw it, I am going to buy that thing. I am going to, you know what, I will do that thing because the money's there. Where if the money's not there, you have to really consider, is this important? Do I need this? What is this going to bring me? And so on and so forth. It does leave more room for critical thinking. And and I think it's really fascinating. And, and it seems really life-giving for you. And I appreciate you setting that example to people. And I'm thinking along the same lines as this topic of demonetization. I'm thinking about the relationship between money and community and interrogating where true wealth is to be found. So how has living on a smaller income fostered a deeper connection to community? And how have you been able to successfully transition away from the economy of money into one of exchanges and relationships in the absence of overflowing financial wealth where we can find the security of communal networks? Well, what I've kind of come to see is that community exists the best when people need the community. So community exists when people are actually dependent upon each other for each other's needs. The more that we don't actually need each other, the less likely it is that we have strong communities. For example, in our generation where you can just be totally mobile, you have your money, you get it from some source, it's so easy to just move on from place to place and not really have to you know, create a strong community. The strongest communities are where when people live near each other and they depend on each other for survival. And the strongest communities I always see are in other countries where people have way less money and they have to go to their neighbors and say, can I borrow some money? And if they don't, you know, they might die of a disease or something like that. When people need each other to survive, they're looking out for each other more. So basically, I think community comes from the actual need for each other. And that's where I think that, you know, super wealth will not create strong communities because when you have super wealth, you can leave those people behind at any time and go somewhere else. You can forget those problems and move on to somewhere else. So for me personally, my sense of community has gone up so much because I am dependent upon people around me. Now, the American idea is complete independence, that we're not dependent upon each other at all. And it's almost like looked down upon to be dependent on other people. You're supposed to be able to do it all on your own. Now, I think that is, you know, one of the greatest problems that we have here in the United States, that narrative. So instead, I have chosen to be dependent upon other people, partly as an example to show Look, we need to depend on each other. This is this is how we make things work and also because it creates humility. Actually needing other people is what has really humbled me and one of the big things is that in the United States it's it's good to give but not good to receive. So we all want to be good givers, but how many of us are really good at being handed something, just given something? Not very many of us. 
And so what I want to do in order to be a good giver is actually have to receive. And that's why I've done these trips like traveling with no money. A big part of it was that I learned to be able to be given something and to be able to receive. And ultimately, that's what's made me much better as a community member and someone that's actually better at being able to serve others and to give. Because I, I do have some idea of what it feels like to need to need help and to need somebody. And it seems like you've been able to tap into the reciprocal exchange of needing and being needed. You know, it's so funny. It's so funny how uh, it's so ingrained in us to feel like we're not valuable if we need other people. When in fact, of course we need other people and we need the planet and it doesn't make us less of a person or less capable in our lives even. And to really change that narrative, I feel like is so is so important. And I want to go back to something we were mentioning earlier in the conversation around people's perception around, you know, the collective consciousness shift and so on and so forth. And I have been learning through researching for this interview that many of your projects involve elements of, you know, civil disobedience or some kind of disruption, like diving into thousands of dumpsters across the country in an effort to raise awareness around the national food waste crisis or, you know, and and I think to some people, this might be very transgressive or taboo or risky. And I'm thinking about how social norms and respectability politics at times upheld by the law and enforced with punity are such large tools in the hands of the oppressor. And this ongoingness and survival of these deeply harmful, destructive industries is incumbent on our silence and operating business as usual. So I'm wondering, especially since you're saying you talk to a lot of mainstream audiences, you know, how are you approaching these issues of perception, the need to shift our collective consciousness while also meeting people where they're at and addressing issues of access? Well, the big way that I do that is I don't tell anybody what to do ever. I do believe that we have the right to kind of do what we want. Now, of course, the challenge of that is that if you're doing what you want and not destroy someone's clean air or clean water, and that means that those people who just simply want to breathe and drink water can't do that anymore, it doesn't really work too well to be able to say we should just be able to do what we want. But Still, generally, I, I try to say, you know, we have the right to, to do what we want. I believe that. So I'm not going to tell anybody what to do. Again, I don't blame anyone for wanting convenience and comfort. Uh, it's nice. You know, sometimes I spend time at friends' houses and in a super comfy bed and, you know, sit on their nice couch and I get rides places and I'll sit down in a nice car and I feel that feeling in that nice car just just that comfort and like, wow, you know, this feels good. So that's the main thing. I can relate to everybody and their desire for this stuff, for the ease. Life is hard. No matter what way you're living it, whether you're a millionaire or, you know, you're trying to live with very little money, I think that life is hard for all of us human beings. And it's often in some ways more hard for those people with a lot of money because they're just ridiculously stressed out and, and they have so many things to deal with. So because I know that life is hard and I have plenty experienced in my life the desire for convenience and comfort, I don't fault anyone or blame anyone uh, whatsoever. And that's the main way that I'm able to be on the same page with people because I, I genuinely do get where they're coming from. And um, 
I just want to give people the option. I want people to make educated decisions. And so what that means is that I don't want anyone to do what I'm suggesting just because they think they like the way that I speak or, or because I'm a good persuader. I want people to make real good educated decisions. I want people to stop thinking black and white and to look at the gray area that not the gray area because everything is gray. There's, you know, everything is gray. And so that's really what I want people to start doing. So, you know, because of that, I don't have too hard of a time communicating with a lot of different people because, you know, they can do what they want. And the other thing is that I just ultimately, I don't care what they decide because there's 7 billion people out there. I just need to talk to a lot of people. Some people are going to change and some people aren't. And so people who just don't care, I'm not going to put my time or energy into that. I don't focus on one, one individual. If I go talk to 100 people and 10 people really walk out of that room starting to think, then I've done my job that day as long as I didn't turn the other 90 you know, harder into the other direction, which you can do. But So that's kind of like my strategy and my philosophy on that, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. I've been feeling similarly lately where I feel like, you know, I don't have the time or the energy to even believe that I can change everybody's direction or their opinions or their feelings about the planet and how we treat each other. And I'm not even trying to do that anymore. I'd really rather just work with the people who are ready to do what it's going to take. I mean, and even that, I even even hearing myself say that, I'm like, well, I don't even really believe that. I think it's more for me just doing what I can and not giving up because I may feel discouraged at moments because um, there are people out there, I'm sure the people who are listening to this conversation right now, who are willing to sit in the hard conversations and sit in the hypocrisies and sit in the challenges and sit with the enormity of the issues and still take a step forward every day and still recommit every day to reciprocity, to integrity, to relationship with the planet and their community. So I I really appreciate you saying that. And well, this has been so wonderful, Rob, and I just want to give you the space to mention anything that is important to you that maybe hasn't been mentioned or any last words that you want to share while we're still together on this wonderful conversation. Yeah, I mean, I would just say for people out there when they're when they're feeling down and they're feeling unempowered to keep on going because again, we can't fix all the problems, but we can live good lives and we can uh, make the lives of the people around us better, and that's just worth it. So we can just keep that up and focus on what we can do, and you know, less so on what we can't do, and that's a that's a life worth living. So I would just encourage people to to keep on doing that. Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. I'd like to thank our podcast production team, our podcast audio producer, Andrew Storrs, our media researcher and writer, Francesca Glassbell, Aaron Wise, our social media coordinator, Hannah Wilton, guest coordinator, and Carter Lou McElroy, our music coordinator. 
The music in today's show was by the Range of Light Wilderness. 